0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday, although apologies that it's coming out a little late on Saturday morning today, but normally we do come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts. Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian grace-infused cosmopolitan guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Saul and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege this week of talking with Susan Stabil. She's the co-author with Ian Morgan Cron of a great new book on the Enneagram called The Road Back to You. It's a great book, and I had a great conversation with Suzanne. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Suzanne, welcome to the Mockingcast.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here.
0: Now, I just want to assure you of a few things that I will not in this interview tell you that you're too much or overbearing, that I will thank you for all that you do. (laughs) <laughs> and for how attentive you are in the interview. And well, if you help me to be successful in the inter- interview, I promise I will notice your efforts. I'll take an interest in you. And uh, I, I really do want to know what you need. Great. So these, these are the, um, of course, how to get along with me tips from the Enya app for the two on the Enya <laughs> oh, oh, group. So,
1: that's fascinating.
0: One, one of my co-hosts. On the show, Sarah Condon is a three on the Enneagram. And so after I was reading your book, I called her. We talked frequently. I said, Sarah, I just want to tell you I admire you. And she said, Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I I called my co-host to tell her I admire her because I was getting tips about how to get along better with the threes in my life. So
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: You and your friend Ian Morgan Cron have written a great book called The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to self-discovery. So are you walking around all the time trying to guess people's Enneagram types?
1: Absolutely not. Really? Yeah, I never have tried. I'll tell you why. Your Enneagram number is determined by your motivation and not by your behavior. So, for the most part, it's a waste of time for people to walk around trying to figure out the numbers of other people. If you're not in conversation with somebody or in a relationship, or if you don't know them well, then the chances of you being wrong by assigning an Enneagram number to them based on behavior patterns is high.
0: Have you ever like tried to guess the types of like favorite TV characters or movies? Sure. Or yeah. Sure. Like yeah. Like the serial drama where you get so involved in the characters' life that you want to put them on your prayer list? <laughs>
1: I woke up this week worried about the designated survivor guy.
0: Me too, me too. I haven't seen this week's episode yet, but me too. I love that show.
1: <laughs> I woke up thinking, I wonder if he's okay.
0: <laughs> it really is a hopeful show about politics. I mean, when you compare it to like House of Cards or something like that.
1: Yeah. 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 I think so too. I And, and that's what I would want, of course, is a is a hopeful, kind human being. What was your
0: reaction when you first found your Enneagram type?
1: Well, um, I was a very long time ago. But when I read uh in the first edition of Richard Rohr's book, um when I read twos, I knew that was me. And I felt uh both exposed and affirmed at the same time. And I um I it's interesting for me because I'm an adopted child. I was adopted at birth. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know how that affected you. I keep finding out how it affected me. But great parents adopted me and raised me and took great care of me and loved me very well. But when I was little, my parents had uh, two biological children when I was born, boys, both 18 and 15. And they all looked alike, and I didn't look like anybody. So I can remember as a child paying attention to people's behavior to see who I was like because I didn't look like anybody. And so it was fascinating to me to read something that that captured both my behavior and the reason I did the things that I do. And I was kind of overwhelmed when I first read my number. And then I was very curious about everybody else's.
0: My wife says that what she likes about the Enneagram as opposed to other personality tests is like it starts off with, look, you're who you are is probably Born out of a lot of fallenness, fragility, brokenness in the world, and it's left some primal wounds. But you know what? There's hope, you know? <laughs> like yeah. as, opposed, as opposed to sort of, it's it, it sort of, uh, it, it is certainly a test that assumes a pretty realistic theological anthropology. Like it doesn't make us better than we are.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I think we know ourselves by what we get wrong, not by what we get right. So I think if we, I I was challenged by a group of people to teach an Enneagram, know your number workshop is what we call it in LTM. And I was challenged to teach a workshop with only the positive attributes of each number and nobody got their number.
0: (laughs) That's like the uh, naive optimistic approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the thing about the Enneagram is different from every other system that I'm aware of is that you can do something with what you learn it's not just an identification of you out of a group of people. But if you go beyond just finding out what your number is, there are things you can do that grow your soul and make your life much better.
0: One of the things I like most about your book is the way you organize it. Because I, I just felt like in a section on page 27, you talk about the triads. And when I read it, I thought, wow, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen it just put this clearly. So you just sort of say, hey, You know, there's nine types. Within that, there's sort of three subgroups. There's the anger or gut triad. That's eight, the challenger, nine, the peacemaker, and one, the reformer. And these are driven by, primarily by this kind of gut-level anger. Eights externalize it, nines forget it, try to suppress it, and ones internalize it. Right. And they take and respond to life instinctively at the gut level. Then you get the feeling or the heart triad, the emotion triad, two, three, four, and they're driven by feelings. Twos focus outwardly on the feelings of others. Threes have trouble recognizing their own or others. And fours concentrate inwardly on their own feelings, and then you got the fear or head triad five, six, seven. The five, your investigator type, they externalize uh, the fear. Six forgets it, and seven internalizes it. So you sort of got the three moves related to each of the three parts of the triad. Right. How did you come up with that?
1: I learned it from other people who had done the work before me. That's not my work, I'm it Ian's. That's been available information for quite a while. Rizzo and Hudson have that information. Uh, Hurley and Donson, Richard Rohr. Yeah, I was thinking more like, I, I mean, the,
0: yeah, I guess the, the concepts weren't new to me, but the, the choosing to um, organize the book that way, like structurally. I think like you, organize, okay. you, you organized, the, I've never seen any e. grant book organized by subtypes, by the triads. And I actually right. found that incredibly helpful right. uh, to, right. to, co- to co- the, sort of the way you organize it, because it, it kept things really straight for me and, and helped me understand the relationships between the types a lot better than I had before.
1: Well, and one of the reasons we did that is because I like to teach in triad order. So I people who start teaching with a one and then go to two, three, four, they, by one and two, they've been in two triads with none of that explained. So if you start with eights and you finish the triad that's at the top of the Enneagram, then you you have to start with eights in order to get to one in a pattern that makes sense to me for teaching. Because once I put eight, nine, and one on the table, then I can help them differentiate um, how they're different from one another based on anger. Because eight anger is straight up and then it's over. And nine anger is passive aggressive. And one anger is resentment. So they, they know they are kind of like these people. They all know that just under the surface, there's anger. So then what is the piece that tells them how they're different from those two numbers in their Yeah,
0: uh, you, know, you have a ministry called Life in the Trinity Ministry, which is a great right. name for a ministry. Uh, do you think some of your connection to Enneagram is what I would say is the perichoretic nature of the thing in that? All the types are just like you can't know the father without the son, and you can't know the son of the father without the spirit. You can't know your type without knowing the type you move towards in your integrating moments, or, or or disintegrate to in your in in your really broken moments. So you're always sort of like you know you're it's like I think in a paracritic view of the world, which I think is just true because God is trying. You know, every truth tends to be relative to some other truth that's in relationship to. You can't know things totally discreetly in reality. Is that part of the draw to you for the Enneagram?
1: Yes, it is. Because I think, um, you know, I've been teaching for 25 years, long time. And there are people occasionally who want me to prove the Enneagram. They want to argue with me about its validity and all that. And I'm pretty laid back about that. I don't need anybody to... uh, um, appreciate or buy into Enneagram wisdom. But my answer to people is just live with it for a while, because it's just true. It's true information. And if you can allow it in, it not only will tell you the truth about you, but it will tell you the truth about how to have more compassion and more understanding and more concern for the common good and for other people.
0: What What's the best way for someone to assess their type. You have a favorite test. You have a favorite sorter. You have a favorite.
1: I'm a kind of a holdout on that. I don't approve of the tests at all. I, um, are the indicators or whatever we want to call those. I, you know, the Enneagram is probably 3,500 years old and it was an oral tradition until the 1970s. Wow. Yep. Nothing was published until then. There were notes and journals, but nobody was publishing books about the Enneagram. And if an oral tradition lasts that long, then there is something about the value of teaching it orally, I think. I, uh, along with my husband, who is a former Catholic priest, uh, he left the priesthood at 40, and he's been a United Methodist pastor for the last 28 years. And we, from time to time, we skip a couple of years and then we start it again because we have a center here in Dallas. And we... Uh, do an Institute for Spiritual Formation, we offer a two-year program that's an Institute for Spiritual Formation. And what we found out was if we used an indicator the first session and then two months later came back and I taught it orally, that the indicator proved to not be correct a high percentage of the time. And I think as I have looked at the indicators of the tests over the years, I think it's because it's very difficult to measure motivation in the number of questions that you would have to ask to help somebody figure out what their number is. The, the reality is we all do the same things, so the question gets to be, why, but why do we do them? So um, I I really think, and and this sounds so self serving that it makes it's embarrassing for me. But I really believe that the best opportunity people have for a way that who can't be in a workshop where it's taught live is for a, with a book like ours that's narrative style, that's easy to access. I think most people who read the book will know their number when they finish.
0: How often do you think people with like indicators and tests and stuff test? Mistet- I mean, have you seen a lot of mistesting?
1: Uh, very high. The percentage is very high.
0: Yeah. That, yeah. I, i in my experience too. I think sometimes it can be, I think you're right. It is more of an intuitive process right. where, where you sort of step through the doorway and see the room and you're like, Oh, this is my room right here. Right. Right.
1: And because I use storytelling when I teach, so many people come to me and say, you know, I wasn't sure until you told that story about your next door neighbor. And I thought, Oh, that's me for sure. That's exactly what I would do. So I think we've, um, I, I think we need the stories. I think that's the best hospitality we have to offer one another is our stories. And I think in the in the storytelling, people find themselves as one of many instead of separating themselves from the others and thinking that they're autonomous in some way, which just refers back to what you said earlier about the Trinity.
0: What other types that you like? Uh, do you have a favorite type that you like to spend time with? Like, if you if you if you were going to plan a day that was going to be really like fun or life giving or restorative, like, is there a type that's like particularly you're f- fond of for that sort of pursuit?
1: Well, I would have to put in a disclaimer. My favorite person on the planet is my husband, and
0: um, what is your husband's type?
1: Uh, he's a nine, so he he's always my first choice. However, our children are four different numbers. Wow. Seven, Yeah, seven, eight, nine, and four. And um, I like to be with them for different reasons. And we have six grandchildren, and I like to be with them depending on what I want to do or what kind of mood I'm in or what my needs are. They each meet those needs from their number as well. So I, I can't say that for all activities I would have a favorite, but I would have a favorite depending on the activity, if that makes sense. Joe always being the top pick.
0: <laughs> well, and at least you have a seven in there with your kids. So if you need to like party and yeah, he have keeps a little bit of a, you know, smell the roses a bit. A
1: lot of humor from him.
0: You talk about in the book about how to use the Enneagram for spiritual formation, right? And, and I mean, how how do you, how do you do, I think like the, this is the biggest, uh, challenge, I think, with spiritual formation. How does it not become something like a form of law or rule-oriented in the worst sense and really become a gracious gift to being yourself? I mean, how do you, how can you use the Enneagram in a way that doesn't feel, you know, uh, I, I feel like if we feel constrained, like when we really feel free is when the is and the ought line up and there's not an external. So so how do you use it in a way that facilitates the journey a gracious journey of real self-awareness?
1: I think the best thing for us to begin with in talking about that question is that we the Enneagram shows you the best part of you and then you discover that it's also the worst part of you. And so in a culture, when we have a tendency to truncate everything, when we, when we manage things by disposing of whatever doesn't fit, it's an interesting journey for us to have the responsibility of putting our arm around the reality that you can't get rid of this part of you. You have to make it healthy. You you have to grow in it. You have to be more mature in it. So an example for me as a two is I'm a giver. I'm a helper and I'm a giver. And sometimes my giving is altruistic and I'm called to do it and it's pure. And sometimes my giving is to get something in return and it's manipulative and it's um, controlling. So I think the fact that you can't get rid of what you don't like in the wisdom of the Enneagram means that you can love yourself more through the journey because you don't want to get rid of a part of you. You don't want to do without a part of you. I um, When I start to teach in Know Your Number workshop, I say, you know, by the end of the day, I think most of you will know your number. What I know is that everybody in the room will be more compassionate hmm. because we live under the assumption, not that we're all the same, but we do live under the assumption that we all take in the same information when we observe something and we absolutely do not. And that's what determines your Enneagram number.
0: You tell a really moving story in the book about a parent. It's like when a parent, it, their kid first gets glasses yeah. and they see the prescription and they, and they realize, oh my God, I, I can't believe my kid was seeing the world this way. Right. And and that's, you know, so much the nature of sometimes when you work with something like the Enneagram, yeah, you you see that, wow, two of us can stand in the same place at the same moment and experience something completely different.
1: That's right. That's right. And how you take in that information determines what triad you're in and uh, what you lack in processing that information determines what Enneagram stance you're in. How How is
0: it working with a four on the book? Ian's a four.
1: Well, we share a line on the Enneagram. So that means that I am usually focused outward, and he, as a four, is usually focused inward. So when we meet in the middle of that, there's a mix. Um, th- there's a goodness about our work together and our being able to focus both inside of ourselves and outside ourselves in terms of what we're trying to offer to other people. Ian is... Uh, one of the best writers I've ever read. His other two books are equal to this one. Um, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me is his memoir, and it's really good. And Chasing Francis is a novel um, based on some true stuff, and it's really good too. So if if I have uh, all of this material and I want it to be in the world, and Ian called me on a Sunday afternoon and invited me to write an Enneagram book with him. And I had said I would never write one (laughs) that I thought it should be oral, Hmm. but he, he gave me some very compelling reasons for why we should do it. What were they? And he believes that, uh, one thing he believes is that in evangelical circles, the Enneagram is new. Yeah. And that it offers people within, uh, evangelical systems and churches, a way to talk to one another about the differences in how they see the world without being dismissive and without uh, having to be right. Hmm. You you know, you can have two right answers instead of just one, or seven right answers instead of just one. And I had gotten to a point, because the Enneagram's pretty hot right now, where I was saying no to two opportunities for everyone that I could say yes to. Hmm. And so I realized I wasn't going to be able to get in the room with people and teach them their number. I was going to have to let go of some of that. And, um, we, I, I think we did a really good job of capturing each number and, um, and making it, I know I've already said this, but it's so important, making it appropriately accessible for everybody.
0: Do you, do you like, do you notice as a two, do you ever, do you ever somatize? All the twos I know, not all of them, but several of them, like it just seems like they're because that's the most purely, they say, right, interconnected, interpersonal of all types. I mean, you're walking in the room, you just feel all the energy. And sometimes that, that, that manifests itself in, in, in somatic stuff in the body. And the Do you, do you sure. notice that with twos?
1: Yeah, um, quite a bit. I think the thing that's most important to say about twos in relation to that question is that we feel other people's feelings and not our own. So when I walk into a room and I feel the feelings of everybody in the room, it's often more than I can carry. Physically, it's more than I can handle. Twos also don't have any boundaries, so they they don't have good ones, so they don't know how to say no to people. So they just wear themselves out, giving and giving and giving, hoping that somebody's going to want them. And so there's some reality behind the exhaustion that goes with how they are in the world that creates physical symptoms that they need to listen to.
0: My wife is a two, and I think she is always, if I, it was so many women test as twos, right? And yeah. so, or come out, or I wonder, like, is it, how much of that is because, and, and I, my wife really, I mean, she would say it fits her pretty well, but I mean, how often do women test as twos just because we sort of socialize women, okay? You need to be the nurturer. You need to pay attention. You need to, you know, like the, the, it's almost it's like a false positive almost because of gender stereotypes sometimes.
1: Exactly. If I do a women's retreat using the enneagram, and there are 150 women there, probably 50 or 60 will identify as twos on the enneagram, and probably only 20 of them are really twos.
0: Yeah, that's that's so. Is that? I mean, I think that if you if you feel like is is a woman that. You've been put in this helper role a lot. I mean, I I can. It seems like sometimes the the identification can be hard sometimes. Yeah,
1: it's especially true in my generation. So um, I was born in 1950, but for baby boomers, we still, as women, were born into that role that twos kind of define. But younger, my daughters and the people women their age don't misidentify nearly as often. And with a little work, I can help uh, in a workshop the women who have identified as six, as twos to recognize that they're probably another number. and often they're sixes.
0: Is there a type that you think masks as a type often like are there pe- are there certain yes. types that wh- okay, so what are the most common things that it looks like this, but really they're this.
1: A counterphobic six masks as an eight frequently 2s and 9s look very much alike and 3s and 8s look very much alike particularly female 3s and 8s
0: so 4 5 or 7 you're pretty they're easier they're, they they yeah. have less of a thing that
1: 4 is the least common number and the most complex on the enneagram and you pretty much you you pretty much know if you're a 4 and other people know it ones have a deal breaker so um you know ones here a constant critic They have a voice that's a critic that is never kind to them and doesn't give them any attaboys. And that critic is consistent all day and all night, all the time. And other numbers don't have that. We all have self-talk, but we don't have that. So once that's well explained to ones, they know whether or not they're a one. Sevens, uh, Sevens and fours you can't tell apart as little kids. They look exactly the same. But starting in late adolescence, they begin to to show themselves as one or the other of those two numbers.
0: Why, why is that? Why 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 do seven and fours look the same?
1: I think it's because it, they're neither one ever satisfied. They always want more for different reasons, but they always want more, and they um, are are not emotionally available in average space. Fours and sevens are available when they're. Feeling really good and when they're feeling really low. But in average space, they're generally kind of checked out. And so it's hard to read that when their emotional expressions are are often kind of over the top.
0: That's really interesting. In your work it, it, to teaching the Enneagram, and like you said, most of it's been oral and through teaching and workshops. And, I mean, what's the, what's, the, are there like moving things that stand out? Like the person for whom life was really hard and, getting a gracious window into themselves, where the lights went on and and, and things came together?
1: You know, I think, um, you know how Paul says, um, I don't know why I do the same thing over and over. I, I try really hard to not do that, and I do it anyway. Well, everybody says that. We all feel that way. And as soon as you learn the Enneagram and somebody explains to you why you do the same thing over and over and over, then it's almost like that awareness opens the door for the grace that allows you to let it go. You can just let some behavior go. But we are so controlling, and we're not people who allow well. So we have to learn to allow these parts of what we would call false personality to fall away. The other truth is, if you hear all nine numbers taught, then while you might not like everything about your number— you for sure don't like everything about the other eight numbers. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's, it's kind of like, you know, I know this is messed up, but it's my mess. And I'm going to hang right here. I, I I can't imagine being any of these other numbers.
0: Suzanne, can you guess my type yet? Like you're an expert 25 minutes, you know.
1: You know, I haven't been trying to guess your type, but um, I, I would say that I think you're probably in, in the head triad.
0: A, a what? So that would be
1: head triad.
0: Interesting, interesting. I am a four as thorough as gets, but with a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I like theology and stuff like that. So there's, I've lived a lot in yeah. academic circles, but it's all heart for me.
1: Interesting because you, um, you ask head questions.
0: Yeah, I, that's so, interesting. I, that's I hadn't thought about that.
1: Yeah. So if I had picked a number, if I'd picked one instead of a triad, I would have picked five.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I also have ADHD. So I, I first, I when I took the test, I thought I was a seven. Yeah. And but it was that's why I was interested by what you said about the seven and the four because there's a restlessness and a kind of you know I'm probably four with a three wing, so it's kind of a it's probably the more extroverted side of the four, and so right,
1: very right. interesting.
0: So that was my narcissistic moment for the. Interview.
1: <laughs> 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 You're allowed one.
0: Exactly. Ex- exactly. So you no, know, you also have a podcast. We do. Where you interview? Well, back to you where you interview people of different types. Right. So what's been the, like one of the most interesting folks you've had on recently? Oh, I'm
1: so glad you asked, because I would love to talk about this today. Um, Michael Ware, uh, his last name is spelled W-E-A-R, and Michael uh, started working in the White House at 19, and uh, he's 27 or 28, and he was uh, the guy who was responsible for faith and politics. And he's a four on the Enneagram, and we had an opportunity to have him on our show. And we we didn't know him. We we just had heard a little bit about him and heard that he had been in the Obama White House to work with faith and politics. So we had a connection, and he came to be on our show. And every— Everything I'm doing right now, I taught all day yesterday and I have a couple of podcasts today and everything I'm doing right now, I tell people that if you never listen to another one of the podcasts of The Road Back to You, please, right now, before you vote, go listen to Michael Ware on The Road Back to You because he has a, an unending wisdom I found and brilliance about talking about politics in a way that doesn't align him with either party. And it doesn't, um, he's not putting anybody down. He's just saying here, here are the things you can do. So here's an example. I, I asked him to talk about some things we could do leading into the uh, last, I don't know, five or six weeks of the election. He said, well, you know, people, it, Expect things from the government that the government is not responsible for giving us. He said, for example, uh, people want to get their inner needs met by politicians and by the government. And that's the work you do with Jesus. That's not what all this is for. So you need to approach politics in a completely different way. it it, It gave me so much peace about an election that I think has been so crazy because it gave me a place to stand.
0: Hmm.
1: So he's one of my very, very favorites.
0: Have you found the Enneagram sometimes gives you a win? Like I found at cocktail parties, it's given me a way to connect with people uh, beyond the surface. Like where they were all this and it's fun. Like, you know, I have several apps on my phone. We'll just play around that because people like generally like to talk about themselves. Right. And, and, you know, and, and sometimes there all of a sudden you get this capacity to just get in, in a way that you might not normally have in those contexts. Right.
1: We um, do a, an advanced boot camp, we call it, which is a terrible name, but we do five days in August in Dallas.
0: With How many push-ups do so I have to be able to do before I can go to
1: <laughs> you got to have done some Enneagram work. So when people have, have done a fair amount of Enneagram work, they can come to that event. And we usually have about 150, 180 people. And um, this year we did it for the third time, and there were people who had been to all three And one of the most astonishing things I found out is that lots of them who know one another in talking about deep and important things have no idea what the others do for a living. They don't know what their job is. Some of them don't know where they live because they don't talk about that. Those are not the starter questions. It's not, hi, my name's Suzanne. Hi, I'm Fred Flintstone. Well, what do you do? What what do you do? They don't even know that because they start conversation on a different level because they know the Enneagram. So when you come into an event like that and say, hi, my name's Suzanne, and I'm a two. And you say, hi, my name's Scott and I'm a four. Then we have a different conversation to have.
0: Right, so are there ever moments where you're like, in your disintegrated moments where you're like, gosh, I'm such a, a Enneagram teaching fraud. Like, gosh, why am I not more self-aware? I mean, is it, is that like all our virtues or our vices, right? I mean, is it, is it a vice of being sort of an Enneagram teacher that like, oh my gosh, why don't I have it more together? <laughs>
1: You know, I hope this doesn't sound terribly arrogant, but I don't feel that way. And I regret making bad choices, and I often feel like I'm not, I'm not a good enough human being. But I, I don't feel like a fraud ever. I, I'm pretty. What you see is what you get, and um, and I've I've changed so much. I've transformed so much. Let me say that differently. I've experienced so much transformation with the use of the Enneagram that I know that's an ongoing thing. And I think if, if we're too hard on ourselves, it just stops the process. It just means we stop. But I can see why you would ask that question, because the number one most important thing to force on the Enneagram is that they be authentic. Authenticity is everything. And so anytime you're inauthentic in order to try to kind of be seen and uh, know other people, you, you have to sell out to get what you want. It's like fours want relationships almost more than anything. But you feel like you have to be a fraud to be in relationship with somebody because they can't handle the intensity of your fourness.
0: Do you feel like as someone who's a two and, and you kind of integrate to the four is the teaching and an invitation to like write this book with your friend? Are these spaces where you could sort of move into healthy forms of self-expression, like, hey, I can kind of uh, be a little more artistic, creative, you know, worry a a little more about what I'm feeling about this stuff and and how to gift that to others as opposed to sort of a a kind of meeting needs out of a external kind of pressure.
1: Yeah, I, Ian's very creative, you know, so that there's a, that helped (laughs) because he, every word matters to him. And every concept and every story matters to me. Now, they do for him, too. But I think um, I, I believe this. I know that the Enneagram makes people's lives better. And I know that the Enneagram makes people better people. And that's kind of motivation enough to figure out a way to say things so that people can hear it. So let me give you an example. My daughter's an eight on the Enneagram, and that's the one of my daughters, the oldest. And that's a very aggressive number. And culturally, we don't have a lot of appreciation for female AIDS. And she called me one morning. Um, she's been doing Enneagram work since she was 20, so she's in deep. And she called me one morning, and she said, Mom, you know, I, I, um, I don't think the golden rule applies to AIDS. <laughs> and I said, What do you mean? And she said, well, I treat people exactly like I want to be treated, and it never goes well. And it occurred to me that the golden rule doesn't really apply to any of us. We all want to be treated the way we want to be treated, and we all have different needs. And so once I started to take on that whole way of thinking around the pieces that I wanted in the book and the things that I wanted us to say in the book, I was constantly saying, when we wrote the eight chapter, can an eight hear this? And when we wrote the five chapter, can a five hear this? And that changes what you say when you're thinking about it from the perspective of the reader, instead of from your own perspective. And I think the book reflects that. And I think that's why it's going to be a go-to Enneagram book.
0: Well, mission accomplished. I have spent a lot of time with Enneagram material and I think this book is awesome and I want all of our readers to get two copies get one for yourself and one for a friend the road back to you published by InterVarsity press and Suzanne I have a confession to make what is twos are generally my favorite type most of the there people you go. that have loved me well
1: mm-hmm. in the twos so. yeah well put me on the
0: list <laughs> thanks for doing this
1: you're so welcome I enjoyed it I can do. My gift is my song, yeah.
2: And this one's for you. And you can tell everybody this is your song. And maybe quiet. I said a couple weeks ago
0: that I wanted to track my performance based on grooming. And so this morning I have not showered or shaved. So normally I feel like in my own mind, That feels unprofessional, even though nobody can see me. And, you know, my hygiene is generally above average. So one day, give or take, it's not probably gonna make or break things. But for people that are really listening, uh, the six people that care, I have not showered (laughs) and I have a baseball cap on. Sarah is Sans baseball cap. David. But sweatshirt. (laughs) Sweatshirt, Yale. Hey, Yale, and David is has not had a haircut in a while. (laughs) It's not (laughs) shit. It's true. So this morning, I was walking the dogs, and one of my dogs peed on the other one's legs. I guess that was a form of bonding and I was listening to Howard Stern, as is my custom and sting it was a they were playing an interview that he did with sting this week and after they play s o s to the world he you know sting played the guitar and then went went you we know, started playing the bass um and in s o s to the world he, he's uh he plays the bass, but now he's playing the guitar and Stern asked about the bassist, and the bassist is actually standing in for Sting, who played the bass. name is actually playing Sting's bass. He's like, "Do you have to play it just like Sting?" He's like, "Well, oh, no, he's a great band. And then he says, "Well, it turns out how that actually the band playing right now uh, was I forget their name, but he's like, but they started uh, in Texas. They were called La Policia, and they were they were a police tribute band." He's like, "So are we a little narcissist that you play with your own tribute band?" <laughs> <laughs> So insecurity never ends. Okay? So, like, your sting that's and your ego—you might, your ego might be that fragile that you need. To, <laughs> your, you need to re- redo your greatest hits with a tribute band.
2: I think he's got a new record coming out this week.
0: He does. Yeah, that's why. That's why he was doing the and he sounded great.
2: Mm. he looks he looks uh he extremely well preserved ridiculous it's it's uh supernatural almost
0: that's probably because he showers and shaves every morning
3: no it's the yoga and the tantric sex yeah i know i was gonna say i think it's the (laughs) tantric stuff isn't that his thing
0: (laughs) last year stern did an interview with billy idol and he was like well, you know, I was, before, you know, I was, how'd you get into rock and roll? Well, I was kind of aimless. I was 14. And, you know, I had my se- first, I was having sexual encounters and into drugs. He's like, how did you even get the motivation to get into music? Most people become rock stars for sex and drugs. You already had it at 14. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It takes all kinds. Here we are. It's a big week in the world. It's November. And gosh, it's daylight savings time is the worst. Mm. It's the, like, the worst. It's the worst. It freaks me out. It looks Ugh. so dark. And uh, But to bring hope in the midst of Daylight Savings Time, we have a big announcement to make. Sarah's book is coming out. It's
2: finished. It's finished. It's finished. Yeah. She finished the introduction yesterday. Sarah, how does it feel?
3: Um, how does it feel? Terrifying. It feels terrifying. Yeah. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a lot. I'm excited to be done with it and to see what, what happens next. So, it's cool. I'm I'm just glad it's done. I'm grateful for Mockingbird to um be the ones to publish it and super grateful to David Zoll who's been uh, oh, a gosh. a a good encourager and a football coach all summer long. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: I can't I yeah, it's always amazing when these things actually are finished. Yeah. You, like how did how did that happen? It didn't exist a little while ago. Yeah. So, kudos to you, Reverend. I mean, what's even
0: what's even more amazing is making a football analogy with David Saul, <laughs> who has probably watched one Super Bowl in his life.
2: Yeah, fair oh. enough. Yeah.
3: yeah, but I would talk to him on the phone when I was having a tough time, and he would all would be like, just get out there and hustle, Condon. I mean, that's what it felt <laughs> like. <laughs> like back Pen the paper, it. pen the paper.
0: Yeah. You don't make it to the Hall of Fame without a dirty uniform.
3: Absolutely.
0: So what do we got on the docket this week, David?
2: Well, uh, it's been a pretty boring week in the world events, as we all know. <laughs> Kidding. Um, but in fact, I uh, just should say up front that, um, Scott, you wrote something on the website about the election I thought was really powerful and Thomas Beckett. Uh, I put Great my- sermon
3: material. If you don't know what you're going to preach this Sunday, it's worth looking at.
2: Yeah, and it really, definitely, and I I put my oar in yesterday, and then Sarah has something going up this morning. So I think uh, we've all kind of made our some of our thoughts or feelings known. It's, there's a lot to say, of course, but today um, we're we're also trying to see what else is going on, kind of catch up with the rest of our lives. But the first thing we're um, looking at, or for in the podcast today, at least in another weekend's, is this piece in the New Yorker about um, the future. Is the sort of left leaning uh late night comedy is it futile and what what do we make of the sort of huge surge in late night comedy and and how how strident um and political it all became did it actually do anything uh and that the article itself is interesting but what the reason it stuck out to me was because of the quote from Stephen Colbert uh speaking on showtime live uh, when he said How did our politics get so poisonous? I think it's because we overdosed, especially this year. We drank too much of the poison. You take a little bit of it so you can hate the other side, and it tastes kind of good. And you like how it feels. And there's a gentle high to the condemnation, right? You know you're right. You know you're right. Then he went on finding his chair. Politics used to be something we thought about every four years, maybe two years if you didn't have a lot of social life. And that's good we didn't think about it that much because it left room in our lives for other things and for other people. Now politics is everywhere, and that takes a precious brain space we could be using to remember all the things we actually have in common. So whether your side won or lost, we don't have to do this shit for a while. And he talked about sort of growing up and, you know, Nixon was was uh, elected and sort of yeah we thought about Nixon you know but it wasn't like I, he was probably pretty young at this point but it, it didn't it wasn't as, as dominant and I I've certainly noticed this and uh, you don't have to be on social media to know this people who can't get out of bed or people who feel like uh, you know Jesus Christ has come again I mean everyone it's there's there's such a strong
0: people who are going and recording on the podcast without showering or shaving <laughs>
2: yes <laughs> but you know I, I, to me. It's, I don't want to downplay. We've again, we've said a lot of things and there's so much to be said. And I really think it's an emotional time, time for people to process whatever it is they're feeling. Um, But you do see uh, a kind of the degree to which we've made politics into religion and Mm. uh, the be all, end all, the absolute. uh, I I think that's a little bit what he's getting at. And clearly, we're living in a different world. But I did find that to be at least a hopeful takeaway for the time being. Not that people should stop talking about politics or thinking about it, but that we do there are there are other things going on in life where there's common ground and space and human experience and hurt and need and um wounds, and uh, love, and joy, and um, maybe my prayer for us all is that we can have uh, some kind of window into that the rest of our lives, because wasn't that the refrain from everyone beforehand? I just can't wait till this is over, and we can kind of get on with our our life well. Now it's over, and maybe um, at least time being take your kids to soccer
3: amen yeah you know so so on election day um i had to take our kids with me to vote um because i would not have otherwise. to be honest with you i don't begrudge anybody who takes their kids to vote but i really wanted this to be as low-key as possible in their lives so i took the kids to vote and uh, we had friends from our church who we're very close with. And um, she had called me and said, hey, and they had a three-year-old uh, staying with them. And she called, and she's got teenage son. She said, hey, uh, we, you know, we've got my sister's three-year-old in town, and I've made mac and cheese, hot dogs, and hamburgers. Do you want to come over? So I brought my kids over. Her kids are all there. Our husbands eventually showed up. We opened up some wine. Um, Disney Junior was on the television and we sat there and we told each other stories about our honeymoons and it felt like our and i have no idea who they voted for literally have no idea who they voted for and it it felt like our own like quiet protest i don't know it it it, it she kept saying it was a bubble like the next day i saw this friend and she's like i wish we could just go back to that bubble right now and i'm like but maybe Maybe that's actually life, right? Like, maybe that's life. Maybe not us, like, all being upset and having... I mean, I was so... It was so wonderful to me to be with friends who, even when the results were rolling in, we knew we had kids with us and we knew we didn't need that anxiety and they didn't need that anxiety. And so, you know, that pirate show that's on Disney Junior was blaring, <laughs> like... Yeah. You Jake, know, Jake and the Jake Neverland Jake and Pirates. the Neverland Pirates, exactly. Mm. So Arr. Mm-hmm. A lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar
0: experience on election day. I mean, I, after, I, I actually, voting was a, a nice experience. Like, it, there were so many people there, and we laughed and joked. And, like, it, there's a guy at our polling place that brings coffee and donuts for everybody, like boxes mm. and boxes. And he's been doing it for 25 years. And, That's so like, we're all sweet. standing in line. And, like, Lindy points out that it's a Pennsylvania law that if you absentee vote, if you have a, a you have to have your name and address posted. So Lindy's like, Okay, anybody that's into burglary, here you yeah. go. <laughs> he was just out of town for extended time. So everybody's just laughing and, and it, it was a moment that felt very human and, and, and felt very I felt so civic after it, civically minded that I actually picked up somebody else's dog poop. Like I was as my dogs were relieving themselves i thought somebody <laughs> didn't do this and normally i just curse them and say who does that and i just said you know what it's gonna be okay and then i you know i went to new york to record this interview with a guy named jim nabel who i posted yesterday because it was uh it was a long interview like an hour long and he played music and i didn't I, it sort of was it was so it was so lovely and i just was like look this just needs to be a standalone thing and We're, you know, huddled together in the sacristy of St. George's Church while, you know, this, what, you know, everybody is making out to be the apocalypse is going on. And we're just talking. And, you know, I had never interviewed a singer-songwriter before. Mm. And he was so, it was such a human experience. And then, like, he would play music, and he's, you know, he's a very gifted musician. And he's just playing, like, it felt like just for me, you know, like, in that moment it was. And he and I, like, the next day talked you know just via text message and i said i think i'm just going to push it out there as a standalone like post election hangover episode uh because in that moment of human connection mm. it 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 didn't feel like the end of the world and and even it, it, you know even in moments that it's funny because shows like the walking dead show us even at after the end of the world there's still room for humanizing moments you know yeah. that's why we like post apocalyptic television right because it shows us that there are graced moments where actually, sometimes when all the social constraints and things that serve to construct our identity pass away, sometimes there's a shred by grace of humanity left in us. And so I felt like thanks to Jim Nabel, uh, and he wrote, uh, for our listeners, I I encourage you to check it out because it concludes at the end, he wrote a song called Mockingbird because uh, he knew he was, we had planned like two weeks ago to do this, uh, and his six-year-old son wrote the lyric. Mm. He was messing around with his guitar, so... His six-year-old son, who, which, you know, I mean, just hashtag feel like a failure. Athanasius uh, wrote the Nicene Creed at 25. Jim Nabal's son is writing songs. It's sick. And uh, I'm not going to say my age, but I haven't showered or shaved.
3: Mockingbird,
2: I will be free. I will be free without you watching me. Not in a cage I want to go every place for the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, moving on. Next we're um going straight to the heart of kind of uh the more personal side of things with a, um one of Heather Haverleski's um featuring a couple things she's written in the past couple weeks. Um this is one of her Ask Polly columns for uh the New York magazine and um The the headline is, I failed at everything I worked to achieve, and Heather is fielding a letter from a law student, a third-year law student, a young woman who just feels like a complete failure, who hasn't gotten a job, even though she's had great grades and feels like there's something about her that continues to circle around failure. Uh, She says, basically, I vacillate between sometimes simultaneously occupying two deeply dysfunctional emotional emotional spaces, the first of these being, I'm basically worse than Hitler not very smart, completely deserving of these failures, and doomed to an unfulfilling career. And second, I am better and smarter than everyone else in law school. Everyone here is boring anyway, and only smart in a one-dimensional way, so screw law and everyone in it. Um, and Heather gives this wonderful long response, which is one of her classic discursive, you know, deeply empathetic, and she opens up and this is before the news about Leonard Cohen, which I know we're going to talk about less. She opens up by saying, sooner or later, we all discover that life is not a never-ending victory march. You know, I I don't know if she was, I think she was probably quoting Hallelujah. You know, life is not a victory march. It's a cold and broken. It's says one of the most interesting things you'll ever see is someone describing a disappointment. And she goes through this and talks about her own life, and she gets to the meat of it which is when she says, failing and being rejected are so good for you. And um, I don't know if she's, uh, we we can sort of interpret it as also sort of just receiving a no, maybe, and that's what people have gotten uh, politically this week or the opposite. Anyway, she says, once you accept that this is an important time, a glorious, amazing, promising time, when you're defeated, that you can lean into your failure instead of trying to hide it on the outside while eating yourself alive on the inside. And uh, she says, shit never stops happening. You do not arrive somewhere someday where no more uh, S-H-I-T happens this is how it feels to be an adult. And if you accept that and embrace it, you will see how much happiness flows out of every crisis. If you fear it and get defensive and hardened and walk away instead of facing it head on, you will only learn how to become a perfectionist who quits and hides and is plagued by fear forever. This is sort of the final paragraph here. She says, this is the skill you need more than any other. Learning to face yourself in all your wild anger in all your self-hatred and fear and anxiety, and learning to face an uncertain future. Everyone has to do this over and over again. You were lucky to be here, trust me. This is perfect training for your career. Before you become a helper, you are going to know how it feels to need help. Before you become a helper, you're going to know how it feels to need help. Now, that's, um, you know, uh, maybe sounds a little uh, trite in some ways, but I think she's, she's right. And that um, failure is the great, is one of our great teachers suffering. Life is not a one long, you know, march towards progress and life eternal. Uh, it is a, usually a series of defeats in which um, what is uh, true and real uh, comes into focus. But um, wh- where, where did, what do you guys take from this, uh, this exchange?
3: Um, well, so I uh, got kicked out of a class. I think I've told you guys this my um my last year of seminary um my last semester of seminary and because I commuted and had a kid and everything, um I took exactly enough classes. so when I got kicked out of a class, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh graduation was super up in the air, and um it was it was totally my fault i um had missed. More class than I should have. It, and I didn't realize that it was taught by a pastoral care professor from Yale. And a Yale psychologist, she will have you know, and um, so it was a pastoral care class um, that I got kicked out of, and I uh, know <laughs> it was crazy. And when I, <laughs> I, I feel like this is where we need a laugh track. <laughs> it was, because. it was really, it was really messy though. I checked my email, and I got this email, and they just, and she said, you know. Um, we've been keeping track and youth miss it was probably three <laughs> classes and we want you to know that this is the policy and so we're gonna have to ask you to leave the class so I um drove in from Westchester County so lucky that I did not get in a car accident I was driving like bad out of hell and I got there and was just like crying in front of them and in front of the class too like I was in front of my peers and she the professor said to me she's like well Um, I feel like you're, which was so powerful to have a Yale, um, psychologist say to me in front of other people, she's like, I feel like you're a little unstable right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's accurate. And then she's like, you know, you should just take the semester off and then come back and take the class next spring. And I was like, so my husband's moved to Texas. Um, and I'm going to need to move there with him with our small child. So it was like a, it was a total mess. I I ended up taking a class here in Houston at another seminary. I didn't even know I could do that, but I managed to do that that summer, which was a great experience. Um, Scott, I kept reading this piece and both hating this young woman and also, thinking of the podcast you sent me about threes on the Enneagram, which I am, and how good failure is for us. and I think this is true for everyone. And specifically sometimes how good public failure is for us, like when we have to say to people, as this young woman says in this piece, like what do I say to family? what do I say to friends? because it's so jarring when like um, when great forgiveness and understanding meets great failure. And anyway, I, I kept thinking of that as I was reading it. Also, also the the advice um, Heather Haverleski gives her about sort of knowing the ambient noise of your upbringing mm-hmm. and how important that is in the midst of of when we face these major, major things. Because I, I, I actually think the ambient noise of your upbringing can really make you realize that maybe you're making a poor choice, but it can also, you know, some some days the thing that gets me through for example, like when everybody's been very bleak about this election, I'm like, hey, my grandmother's made it through the Depression, y'all. So like we're going to, you know, I mean, that was the ambient noise of my childhood. Like, hey, your grandmother's made it through being widows and the Depression. Like, I think you can figure out science class. So, yeah.
2: <laughs> Sarah, I, I can't believe that story didn't make it into the book, but um, I'm glad <laughs> people have it for posterity now.
3: Yeah.
0: I got a text message from a friend who's uh, uh, who's black and pretty accomplished guy in education. He's an administrator and probably, I mean, he's just a very successful guy and a dear friend. And he texted me and he said, did you see uh, Donald Trump today with the president? His posture was different. I mean, maybe I'm being overly hopeful, but maybe the office will change him. And I thought about, as I was... Reading Heather's piece, I say Heather like I know her, but I thought about the book Failure of Nerve, which is if anybody is listening who's a pastor or a leader or is just trying to figure out how to not kill your coworkers or your children or your spouse or anybody. <laughs> um, David, as your father said recently in a sermon, you know, have you, as an analogy, have you ever been at a cocktail party? You've hosted it, and at the end, as you're loading a dishwasher, your friend is helping you. And you just want to take the carving knife and stab them in the throat. I mean, <laughs> y- you've had this experience, right? So I, the whole point of Friedman um, in The Failure of Nerve is that he says, you know, what we say, we want more empathetic leaders. And he says, that's le- empathy can kill a leader. Because what both, most of the time we're saying empathy, what we really mean is mirror our anxiety. Like when we're, And he's, he said, really good leaders know themselves and their failures and their anxieties, and then when they hit hard things, can actually be a calming presence. And I'll tell you, watching uh, Crown, The Crown, recently, we just binge watched it. Yeah, and we did this, too. We did too. And there's this scene where she's, where the queen is say, learning and saying to Winston Churchill, you know, Winston, you are the efficient. I am the dignified. You know, you are responsible for governing, but I'm responsible to make it governing governance possible. In Barack Obama, I, we saw they're in a rare moment in American public life, we saw the efficient and the dignified merge. Mm. And this is, you know, a, a, a validation of everything that, and maybe on our 10th anniversary, it's, a, it's gracious that we get to see it, of everything Mockingbird has been saying, that here's a guy facing somebody that questioned the legitimacy of his, of his identity, of his kids, of his, <laughs> you know, like, and he met him with dignity. And it apparently was humanizing. You know, like it was, you know, he actually invite, it seemed to invite a a genuine eye thou. and they talked for 90 minutes. Mm. And at the end of the 90 minutes, Trump said, you know, this is a a good man. He's an honorable, he's a great, great person who I will actually look forward to seeking his counsel. And then again, uh, Obama said, don't take the the, the first question, go with the last ones. And again, he said, good man, good man. It's just the only thing that humanizes is unconditional love. Wow! 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 And, and, and that and that lesson was learned through lots of struggle with his own racial identity, his own failures. I mean, driving to his first Democratic convention, humiliated because he almost ran out of gas. I mean, like mm. you know, I mean this you know, I mean this is the president who has known that the one who is forgiven much and and knows much about themselves. And as David, you said. Reality is always a good thing because you find God in reality. This is a a man who's lived in reality and and apparently was able to give people a glimpse of what is really real.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, Scott, what you say also reminds me, I mean, this is just where I woke up this morning is, is not thinking about the election so much as thinking about Leonard Cohen. And he's got a song, one of my favorite songs of his is called The Future. And, um, a line in there, I've heard the stories, heard them all, but loves the only engine of survival. I think that Mm. that's, uh, that's where my mind goes. And, um, uh, I mean, Cohen is someone who is operating on such a deep level that it's um it's feels silly to try to almost temporalize him because he's uh he was tapped into something so deep and and what what he was tapped into, of course, was a lot of d- divinity, a lot of God. I mean, he was a man who was sort of. T- um, not only, you know, a Buddhist and a Jew, but he was Christ haunted, and, and you can't get away from that in his uh, lyrics and his words. I mean, one of my, f- also in the future, he says, give me back the Berlin Wall, give me Stalin and St. Paul, give me Christ, or give me Hiroshima. <laughs> I, mean, I think uh, this guy's dealing with um, some very deep, Things We also have the Victory March. I mean, Scott, uh, Sarah, I'm, you, you recommended it to me, Scott, so I'm sure you heard Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast about Hallelujah and how it kind of came to be and, and all the permutations that that song went into. But that's a th- that song has, has become such a um, secular hymn because it's not actually very secular. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's actually very deeply about, you know, David and uh, his theology of the cross. I, I see that in uh, Cohen's um, people who know his song, Come Healing. We sing it in church all the time. Oh, gather up the brokenness. I think it's a hymn for our times, for our... Uh, for our country uh, that's so divided. Oh, gather up the brokenness and bring it to me now. The fragrance of those promises you never dared to vow. The splinters that you carry, the cross you left behind, come healing of the body, come healing of the mind. And let the heavens hear it, the penitential hymn, come healing of the spirit, come healing of the limb. And that's our, I think that's our prayer that uh, he has put into, uh, into words. I could, I could continue to spout Cohen all day long.
3: Isn't it, isn't it remarkable? uh, Some of the people who, you know, on my newsfeed, I I have so many people on my newsfeed in the wake of um, the election. A lot of my friends are, you know, very, consider themselves very progressive people for me. I also have a ton of friends who are, um, Southern Jews, um, you know, Jews from Mississippi and this election was really, really hard for them. And isn't it in some ways it feels like God's timing that Leonard Cohen would have died this week so that there's just this incredible reminder and resurgence of all these things that he said, all these all these songs that he sung, all these poems that he's written, because because those same people are posting them right now. I mean, it's a point of 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 of. of healing and of comfort for them. It makes me very grateful.
2: I wanna, um, here's another one from, uh, tell me again when the filth of the butcher is washed in the blood of the lamb. Tell me again when the rest of the culture has passed through the eye of the camp. Tell me again when I'm clean and sober. Tell me again when I've seen through the horror. Tell me again, tell me over and over. Tell me that you love me then. Amen. Mm. Or we have... Show me the place. These are all from his album, Old Ideas, which is this album before the most recent one. Show me the place. Help me roll away the stone. Show me the place. I can't move this thing alone. Show me the place where the word became a man. Show me the place where the suffering began.
3: That's
0: incredible. I only only have, uh, I want to quote from my own uh, contemporary, what is becoming my own Talmudic um, (laughs) set of friends. Jim Nable, who is, it's funny because unorthodox calls him the Jubidor, and he's, he talks about this, his mother is not Jewish. Oh. so So he, but one whole, his father is whole. So it's this strange, conflicting thing where half of his family is, sure. is Jewish. and um, But a deeply spiritual guy. And he said, um, in a piece here for Tablet, he said, I used to hope to be in vain, I used to hope in vain to be Bob Dylan. By the way, he actually, in this interview, got me to sing like a Rolling Stone, uh, at least a riff a couple verses of it. So I used to hope to be in vain to be Bob Dylan or the next Bob Dylan or just Dylan-esque. Then I realized it was pointless. Bob Dylan achieved his immortality in his early 20s and everything he did thereafter, while often spectacular, just built on the myth of his Halcyon youth. And so at the age of 40, I've curbed my dreams of becoming the next Bob Dylan. I still, though, find it entirely reasonable to hope to be the next Leonard Cohen, who turns 82 today. Mm -hmm. And later in the the piece, he says, As a 24-year-old singer with a guitar in New York, a performance of my serious songs garnered audible whispers of he's like Leonard Cohen, which thrilled me like nothing else. But Cohen didn't just influence me as a writer or solo performer. When I listened to his 1979 concert album released in 2000, I paid careful attention to the way he graciously introduced his individual band members in the middle of the songs, after their solos, or even just... A particularly nice riff that was roscoe beck on fretless bass he'd say i did the same when i got my band the randy bandits going but then he says while his influence was great through my band's peak years it wasn't until we started slipping away from each other as bands do that i found myself truly needing the example of leonard cohen the loss of my band coincided with the birth of my first son <laughs> my days were consumed with swapping adjunct teaching hours and childcare. As my wife worked from home and swapped equally, the songs I wrote were meant for an audience of one, my infant son, who usually began crying the moment I started singing. One hopeless afternoon, I put a DVD of Leonard Cohen's 2009 London show on and my son was miraculously transfixed. I I once again found myself studying the songs and performance style of a man now old enough to make jokes about having once been a 60-year-old kid with a crazy dream. My son took to wearing a hat like Cohen's, inexplicably referred to as his Druka mama hat, and insisted on hearing a playlist of Cohen's songs to ease him into night-night. I drew on the power of the Druks mama, really don't ask, when I asked a female friend to sing with me as I lined up some gigs to explore my more blatantly cohen songs. This phase may or may not, may not have passed, and now my son prefers Adele uh, to each their own. I, I think, you know, this sense, I love that he says, when things were slipping away. Mm. That co- the, the beauty of Cohen is an artist that's beauty is in slipping away, you know, in the slipping away. Like this, is, you know, the, the Frank Lake view of reality that when we look at our humanity as a bucket that ought to contain something good, you know, it, we're screwed. But when the bottom gets knocked out, the bucket it ruins it as a container; it makes it a channel mm. for the life and energy of, of the living gun. Mm. So. And also I you know, I, I could just we should just read Liel's book today. I almost want to just do that, get on uh, Periscope or something and just read aloud Liel's book, The Broken ha- Broken Hallelujah. Liel Leibowitz, if you want to delve more deeply into Cohen. Mm. He's written the book about it.
2: Come healing.
0: Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like it, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, or pass it on to a friend via social media. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are forever grateful. Thanks again for listening, and have a great weekend.
3: Behold the gates of mercy. Arbitrary space
0: And none of us Deserving The
3: cruelty Or the grace or oh, solitude, solitude Of longing Where love has, love has been, been Confined Come healing Of the body Come, come healing, healing Of the mind Who oh, see the darkness Here That tore the light apart. Come healing of the reason.
0: Come healing of the heart.